Hello, I'm Andrew Scrivani. And I'm Chef John. Welcome to the Chef John Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Chef John Podcast. Hello, everybody. Hello, Andrew. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, we have sort of apocalyptic storms coming through where I live right now. So, you know, I'm just trying to hold on to the house and hopefully uh, my plants don't blow away. Well, uh, good luck with that. Um, if you have any small dogs, make sure you, you hang on tight. And every time you say something like that, which because of where you live is, you know, quite often, I always think to myself, man, I would kill for an apocalyptic storm. We should, <laughs> we're like, we had like rain, I think a couple of weeks ago for 10 to 15 minutes. And I was thinking as I was watching disappointedly as it cleared up. Yep. That's like the last rain we're going to have in like four or five months. <laughs> Get the hoses out. Anyway. So hopefully you make it through. Good luck. I think we'll be okay. I know this does come up rather often on the show, but you know, I, we, we've had some very strange weather here on the East Coast. We are the opposite weather and a lightning strike just hit the water in front of me. So yeah, um, uh, if you don't hear from me, it's because the power went out. So that's, you know, that's what will happen here. And, and by the way, if you've just tuned in and this is your first uh, Chef John podcast, this is the most we ever talk about weather. So relax. We'll be moving along shortly. <laughs> yes, we will be moving along shortly. But before we move along, I want to remind everyone that it would be a great idea for you to follow us on social media at Chef John Pod on Instagram and on Twitter. You can also come to our website at thechefjohnpodcast.com. And of course, when you are on Spotify or Apple Music or any other place where you're finding our podcast, please be sure to give us a review and a five-star rating, right, John? A five-star rating. It's five or don't even bother. And also, uh, it helps if you leave a comment. And uh, word on the street is it doesn't really matter what you say, although we prefer compliments, I mean, if, we, if we're being honest. Uh, but really, just any kind of feedback, it would be nice underneath your five-star review. Um, you know, your maybe your top five reasons you left a five-star review, something like that. What do we call that in the business? A uh, foreshadowing. I've been thinking, John. I've been thinking about some outrageous food takes. And I, I, I think you were also thinking about some outrageous food takes. And I, I would love to know, what is an outrageous food take in your, uh, in your world right now? Well, I'll tell you. And uh, as I say this one, uh, I will preface it by it should not be outrageous food take. It should just be a take. Um, well, it's not outrageous. Well, people think it is, but it shouldn't be because it just makes so much sense. So my outrageous food take, which people look at you like you, you know, grew a grew an extra nose on your forehead when you say things like this. But I am totally fine with the absolutely generic, devoid of all nutritional value white burger bun. For your summer hamburgers, pulled pork sandwiches, etc. Um, and I went through a phase like the arc you go in as a as a cook. Sometimes you you start out eating the stuff as a kid. You think it's awesome. There's nothing wrong with it. Then you learn better. You like, oh man, I shouldn't be, I should not be using those. <laughs> these are these are horrible. Oh my god, what was I thinking? And you're actually you know embarrassed for people to do. And then you live a little, you evolve, and you come full circle. And you're like, wait a minute. That's like the best choice for many of these things I'm eating. I'm going to go buy some white hamburger rolls uh, that have not only zero fiber, less than zero fiber. I believe they pull fiber out of your body. <laughs> so my outrageous food take is 
I think it's fine, if not recommended, to use a nice, like barely there, white. It's more of a foam than a dough, but you know the white classic hamburger bun supermarket. Um, you know, if you crush it, it disappears in your hand. It, it's like a marble's worth of dough once you smush it. Uh, I'm totally fine using those. I'm actually going to start recommending them. Uh, and people just think those, many people think those are just horrible on several levels, nutritionally, uh, how they're made, how they're, but you know what, for that specific purpose, I'm not saying you need them every day. I'm saying when you go to a barbecue, slap that grilled sausage patty or whatever on a nice piece of, it's just a, it's an edible napkin. It's just a handle to get it up to your face to eat whatever delicious smoky meaty goodness you're 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 delving into so that's why um you know do we need the bun to be awesome do we need the bun to stand up which is like a cliche the bun's got to stand up to the you know to the to the meat no it doesn't it should stand down stand down bun this is all about the meat uh, i want a little starch i want a little uh something to hold the condiments in so they're not in my hand but above and beyond that, that's all I need the bun to do. So I'm fine with the completely nondescript, uh, generic, and I don't mean necessarily mean literally generic. You don't have to buy the package that says bread uh, or burger bun. Uh, you know, people know, I think, the brands I'm talking about. There's one actually by a fairly well-known nationwide baker. It's like a potato bun. I think that's like a nice, happy medium. You know, it's. Oh, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You're stealing my thunder. Potato bun? Was it that's your outrageous food take? No, my outrageous food take is that what you're saying is completely outrageous. It is outrageous. Well, I told you. I'm outraged. No, it's not just outrageous. I'm outraged. You're literally outraged that I would suggest have the nerve to say you should put a hamburger on a hamburger bun. I'm literally seething with anger right now. Well, that's how I feel nowadays when I see a brioche bun come on. It's like, did we have to use a brioche bun for the for the burger? Come on. All right. Well, I'm outraged because of two things. Number one is I have been uh, relegated to gluten-free hamburger buns for the past decade plus, which is already outraging me. Uh, is that the right way to use that word? Probably not. But it's because I'm so outraged, I don't even speak proper English. So the idea that if I am going to take the risk and eat a hamburger bun other than the actual napkin that my burger is wrapped in called gluten-free bread, um, the last thing in the world I'm going to do, the last, the absolute last thing I'm going to wrap that burger in is a generic white bun. And the potato bun is absolutely acceptable in this situation. But I much prefer, especially if I'm going to be writhing in pain on the floor 30 minutes after eating this burger, I want to make it worth it. And that generic white bun is not worth it it is not worth the pain. It is not worth the medication or the hospitalization that I will have to deal with. But for something sublime, I may very well take the risk. Well, yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking as far as since it has almost nothing in it, I'm thinking those things have a fairly low gluten content. I mean, if you're going with some like sourdough roll bun, that, like an actual piece of bread, some, some artisan made, that's going to have way more gluten. I'm sorry, but it's genetically modified cardboard. Yes, thank God. <laughs> Before they modified the cardboard, it was not that not that tasty. Um, no, I can I can kind of see that. Um, you know, the worth the pain, worth the calories. 
but since this is almost nothing, um, I, I, I'm going with that, that it's such so little of everything, including the horrible things that, um, that I think we can get away with it. My main point is, if someone likes that, I don't think they should not eat it because people will look down upon them like 25-year-old Chef John would have. Well, or 53-year-old Andrew might. But okay, well, I think Twitter is going to have to settle this for us as usual. Do we prefer to have a um, genetically modified napkin as our hamburger bun or actually something more artisanal? Like, I would love to know on Twitter, where do we stand? Do you agree with me or do you agree with Chef John? And I'll one, put one last thing in here. All your most popular hamburgers in America, and I won't name the, you know, the clown uh, endorsed drive through <laughs> place, but in an Burger, for example, that is about as basic white, nondescript white bun as you can get. Um, in fact, they might even use like Wonder Bread buns for all I know. I can't believe you just brought you, you, you literally are trying to stack the deck, put your thumb on the scale by bringing out In-N-Out Burger. That was my ace in the hole. So uh, I played the card. If it's good enough for In-N-Out Burger, translation is if it's good enough for Anthony Bourdain, uh, may he rest in peace. Oh, wow. It's good enough for me. Uh, I can't drop the mic. It's attached to this uh, foam backdrop here but anyway that's i I rest my case all right well i'm gonna pull up the end of the show now and what did we learn today what did we learn today folks we learned today that chef john plays dirty that's right you're not playing dirty you're not playing all right chef john it's time for a new feature something new on the chef john podcast something that i think you will really enjoy we need to discuss the merits of whether you should eat something hot or cold. So I will throw one out there for you. And I would love your feedback because, of course, we're both going to have very, very distinctive opinions on whether or not we should eat something hot or cold. The first one being fried chicken. Some people swear by it. Some people think it's grotesque. Where do you sit on the hot or cold issue on fried chicken? Well, and then I want to make sure we're on the same page here. It's okay if it's something that that was served hot and then now we're 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 dealing with the leftovers that are definitely cold. Is it okay to eat that or not? And then vice versa, something that's served cold and you have leftovers or and or you just prefer it hot. Um, So can we go that way? Because fried chicken, I'm not making fried chicken, letting it cool down and then intentionally eating it cold unless for a picnic in which case it's awesome. I am eating fried chicken hot as the, uh, you know, fried chicken gods intended apparently, but after it's cooled the next day, there are a few things I enjoy more than a beautiful, cold, congealed piece of fried chicken. It is one of the great, great culinary joys in the world. And I cannot believe any person would not, they like fried chicken, in any form, would not enjoy a nice piece of cold chicken. Apparently, you are this person. Oh, man. I mean, first of all, there's there are two categories here. There are There is hot and there is cold. There is no room temperature. Room temperature is not cold. So you're trying to hedge and you're trying to split the, you're trying to split the baby and you can't split the baby, hot or cold, meaning either it's scalding the roof of your mouth or it is coming out of the refrigerator. 
That's how we're having That's it. That's my two choices? Those are your two choices. Well, for fried chicken, I got to go hot. <laughs> See, now I'm playing dirty. But if the topic is what's a food normally eaten hot that you really enjoy cold and vice versa. Okay. Then, which I thought, you know. Um, and by the way, again, if you're new to the Chef John podcast, we have production meetings. I do not attend them. <laughs> so, so generally half our podcast is me figuring out what the actual question is or the category uh, as you're experiencing right now. But kidding aside, uh, yes, fried chicken, it's hot at some point. It comes out of a fryer. So definitely piping hot. I'm gonna eat, I'm gonna eat a piece. I'm not waiting for I'm not waiting till tomorrow. But it is a food traditionally eaten hot that I have no problem eating cold and maybe even uh, possibly enjoy it just as much cold. Okay. Now, one of the great joys of fried chicken mm-hmm. is the crunch. Oh, yeah. And, and the crunch is completely lost in that. And texture is so important to so many people in the way they eat. So I, I would say that that is a major factor. That is a major flaw with the fried chicken you're buying. A proper fried chicken, a properly fried out chicken skin, three days later, still has crunch to it. Not crispy potato chip out of the fryer crunch but a crunch nonetheless. Now, this is why, as I slightly uh, segue here, breaded fried chicken, that crime against nature, the egg wash and the flour and then the breadcrumbs and fried, that stuff is not even crunchy when it's hot, uh, maybe for two seconds. So I'm talking about a the, the buttermilk you know, uh, bath, the double... In and out of the seasoned flour, double dip in so it gets all craggly and crusty and gnarly. Uh, that stuff fried at a proper temperature, properly fried, um, should have some beautiful crunch around the edges, even the next day, ice cold. Okay. That's one thing. So you're eating the wrong fried chicken. All right. Uh, besides being wrong about everything else. But I think I've had, well, I know I have, uh, and I won't name the name, Popeyes. That stays crispy a couple of days. Um or I just had the munchies so bad that I was like, I bet this is still crunchy. I'm going to eat it so fast, I can't tell. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm with you. I wouldn't want a soggy, completely non-anything left to the coating cold fried chicken. But my favorite fried chickens, including the one I make, uh, and if you're interested, we have a video for that, like we do everything, will retain crispiness because it's done properly with a chicken that has skin on it, that fries out. Um, I mean, I went to a restaurant one time that was famous. They were supposed to be famous for the fried chicken version they were doing. And I was just, I was skeptical because the chef was kind of one of these, uh, they used to call them molecular gastronomists. Remember those people? Yeah, yeah sure. Of course. Thank God. What did that last about four weeks? That was not, um, also known as a month. That was not my favorite stage. It was some interesting stuff. Anyway, I go to this restaurant. This person has embraced the molecular gastronomy and he's doing fried chicken. So. He takes chicken and he marinates it. Beautiful marinade, lovely flavor. Then sous vide it. Mm. Cooks it all the way. No. He's thinking, this is so brilliant because I'm going to get the perfect doneness on this chicken. Why don't other people do it this way? Then he took the chicken when it was cooked and cooled. He breaded it, deep fried it to get the crispy coating. That does not work. You know why? Because the chicken was already cooked. So all he was doing was cooking some crispy coating on top of an already cooked. So the skin had no time to fry out, to render out. Hmm. And it was some of the worst fried chicken. And I did not know how to break it to him because 
he was at the table and I did the whole, you know, I'm a foodie guy. Let's chat at the table. Former, So um, I forget we had a common friend. And I forget how the story went. Anyway, he uh, found out I was coming in or someone told him I was there. Uh, maybe it was the host server. Don't remember details like seven years ago. Anyway, he uh, I'm trying not to just in the middle of his dining room, like say, this is like one of the dumbest ideas I've ever. <laughs> but I was trying to be like, that's good. I'm mean, really t- I mean, great chicken done perfectly. But the most important part of the fried chicken was totally wrong. Uh, so I guess that's the key to enjoy it cold. As I try to summarize, it's got to be properly done. It has to be skin on. The skin has to be completely rendered out and crisp uh, where it like fuses to the coating, to the, to that craggly crust. If that hasn't happened, your chicken was not going to be good, hot or cold. Uh, so anyway, that's how I, if I'm going to do a cold fried chicken, which I really do enjoy, it has to be that type. Well, this is a very rare time right now where I feel stupid and fully validated at the same time. Let's see. Uh, more the, more the former, I would say, but I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad you're uh, whistling past the graveyard at the end there. Okay. Well, I have another one. Okay. Well, it, it, they kind of go together because they both served uh, in linked fast food chains, but pizza. And I'll tell you why. And I'm going to give you my opinion first in that I like pizza better room temperature to cold because it, number one, I think you can taste what's actually happening on the pizza better than when it's blazing hot, burning the roof of your mouth. And this is true for a lot of Italian food. I like a lot of things at room temperature or even cold. Uh, I don't mind pizza straight out of the fridge. I think you could still taste it really nicely. You could taste the sauce, you could taste the cheese. And I think pizza is completely viable from moderately hot where it's not ripping the skin off your tongue to completely cold out of the refrigerator and chewy as hell. I love pizza throughout the entire process of that. Yes, and I uh, I would concur. Uh, pizza is one food, delicious at any temperature, completely appropriate at any temperature. I'd also like to just break in right now real quickly uh, to our lovely and talented uh, producer to make sure he edits out that part earlier where he said, there's no such thing as room temperature. It's either smoking hot or... So we've got to get rid of that. So this, this part works. Well, I said with fried chicken. I was I meant with fried chicken. All right, fine. No, pizza is. Um, in fact, show me someone that doesn't think pizza is good cold, and I'll show you someone that I don't want to party with the next day after a party, when everyone wakes up and goes, "Man, I'm starving. Do you want some pizza?" And you start gorging on cold pizza. Uh, that's that's a great culinary experience. How does, how does someone not like that? Okay, so we disagree on one and we agree on one. And I feel like there may be one more here. And I think this is one that is a bit controversial. It's tuna sandwiches. A tuna sandwich or like a tuna melt. I'm going to recuse myself because of the upcoming foreshadowing top five list. Oh. But what I will tell you is that um, if you're going to heat tuna, you got to do it right. So stay tuned. That's coming up. All right. So we'll skip over that one. I thought you were going to go with revenge. (laughs) Well, I mean. Because as you know, we posted this. uh, I posted this question on Twitter. And I said, uh, hey, what are some foods that are supposed to be hot? You like cold and some cold foods you like hot. And we got some crazy, fun, hilarious answers. 
And the top joke answer was revenge. I prefer to serve it hot, <laughs> which <laughs> if we're being honest, is a much more fun way to serve revenge. Uh, cold may be more effective and you generally, you know, aren't uh, indicted for it. But I also think the, the, uh, on the revenge uh, front, the cold served revenge tends to last a little bit longer. Yes, well, that's true. Uh, the one that struck me as the most off-putting, the most uh, borderline nauseating, someone said, I know potato salad is supposed to be eaten cold, obviously, but I actually like it when it's first mixed up and it's still hot. Yeah. And now we're talking about a classic picnic style. Yeah, uh, with, the, with mayonnaise. the mayonnaise. Now, when you put, you know, and not that we're going to start with, you know, sneaking cooking lessons in these podcasts, although we probably should. Um if you're going to mix up a mayonnaise-based potato salad, you got to let the potatoes cool down. They don't have to be ice cold or even room temperature. They could be a touch warm. Um, but if it's hot and you toss in a mayonnaise-based dressing, that the mayonnaise gets really greasy and it never ungreases. It never creams back up. Ugh. So uh, this gentleman, I assume gentleman, um, maybe savage, uh, he... <laughs> insisted that that was a perfectly fine way to eat uh, a potato salad hot right drain them whip mix it up with that mayonnaise and dig right in now i'm fine with a hot potato salad german style bacon dressing vinegar uh that's cool that to me that works because it's not that weird hot mayonnaise which some people have issue with yes uh, which is weird because my top five list thing where I talk about this is going to make no sense. This is cooking. This is food in a nutshell. Certain things are just so clear and obvious until they're not. Uh, and then you're like, wait a minute. No, I do like that. Well, nothing is as polarizing as like hot mayonnaise. I mean, hot mayonnaise. I mean, mayonnaise, it, uh, people are usually sort of hot or cold uh, on mayonnaise to begin with. And then on top of that, hot mayonnaise, hot hot mayonnaise i i mean let's i think well i mean there's always room for a new band name there it is well i'm so happy to be bringing back for the second time in our illustrious history our favorite new segment pairings where we talk about what we're eating while watching television <laughs> Would you love to go first and tell us what you're watching and what do you want to eat while watching it? I would, and I'll tell you. I uh, my show is a, a, a the rare Icelandic offering. Ooh, uh, and so rare! I don't know of any other Icelandic offerings. <laughs> um, so there was a show. I believe it's on Netflix. Although sometimes these shows move around, so you'll find it mm -hmm. uh, definitely on streaming somewhere. Called Katla. Might you spell that? K A T. L A. No J in there. There's no J. That would be Kajakala. <laughs> uh, did I say Kajakala? No, I did not. Katla. And, you know, I'm a big trailer guy. I, I, I love to watch the trailer. Sometimes, and I don't know if you do this, I'll spend an hour and a half on Netflix or Prime watching the trailers and never actually end up on a show. Hmm. Just watch 25 trailers. <laughs> so this trailer really got me. Because, uh, first of all, the scenes are just insane. The cinematography is, folks like you would describe it, uh, mm -hmm. just very arresting. Um, apparently, this is a, a famous volcano uh, on Iceland. 
And the, and again, this is these kind of shows I pick. I can almost say almost nothing about them without giving you know spoilers happening. So I'll be as vague as possible. But the trailer involves, um, or the show begins, and that's covered in the trailer, a completely naked woman, uh, although not completely naked, because she's covered in black ash. And the texture was just so interesting. I was, I've never been like gripped so much by a, by a, a textural uh, visual thing in a, in, a, in a scene like that. Anyway, the, it, it's a, the mystery begins. This woman descends down from this mountain, this volcano, totally naked, covered in ash, as if she just can't come out of the volcano. Right. She was born of the volcano, right? Almost I get literally, it. if not, maybe literally. Mm-hmm. And then a mystery ensues and past mysteries are explained and new mysteries pop up and small town. I, I, I talked about in the last podcast, uh, black spot, also known as white zone. Uh, <laughs> and it was a kind of a similar vibe, you know, the small town, everybody knows everybody, everybody knows the past, uh, you know, uh, uh, trials and tribulations. So I really enjoyed the show. It was very unusual. I tend to like shows that I've never seen anything like it before. Mm-hmm. Part mystery, part uh, small town uh, soap opera. Uh, of course, always these days, the gratuitous statement on climate change. Right. Which is naked woman covered in ash. Uh, apparently that was a, that was a metaphor. And it made me want to eat Scandinavian food, which is not hard for me to be encouraged to do. I love Scandinavian food. It's like my, I say my new favorite sort of, you know, ethnic cuisine, but it's, it's not new. I've been like gorging on the stuff now for three, three, four or five years since it's sort of gained popularity. Um, now I'm interested to get your take on this because back East, maybe this has just always been a thing since you're closer to the, to these folks than we are. But in, in the Bay area, um, there was never like a ton of great Scandinavian places. There was, you know, one, two, maybe one in the suburbs, one in town, but all of a sudden there was like three, four or five just popped up serving really delicious stuff. Um, you know, the, the cured pickled fish and the, I mean, you can't beat a good Swedish meatball. Anyway, the, the food of Iceland, obviously settled by the Scandinavians, Vikings and so forth. Um, so the thing I wanted to eat watching this was a beautifully made home house cured gravlax. Oh, and I really hope I'm getting this right because I heard this many years ago. The word gravlax, the root of that, the beginning of, comes from the word grave. Because what would be done is this: these sides of salmon, these whole fishes, whatever the case may be, were seasoned with salt. Uh, now, to make gravlax, really all you need is salt, but generally there's some sugar involved. There's obviously herbs, sure, juniper, spices, all kinds of different stuff. And it's tied up, packed up, and then buried at the right perfect temperature, because before the days of refrigeration, you'd have to know how many feet down to go to get a constant 50 or 48 or whatever you were trying to go for. Um, so that's where the name Gravlox came from. Like it was buried locks and it could not be easier to make yourself. So this is the one Scandinavian slash Icelandic delicacy, delicacy you can make yourself to cure your own fish. And I've, I've done multiple videos for it. It, it. it really is just that. You cover the fish with salt and sugar, spices of your choice. You let it sit 
usually pressed with some lightweight, maybe you flip it, maybe you don't, for a certain number of days, depending on the thickness and the type of fish. And when you're done and you rinse that off and wipe it off, and then maybe you cut it with some fresh herb and you thinly slice it, uh, you are eating just this incredible product. That you're, most people that haven't done it before are not going to believe they made it that well. Like this is one of those things you can make exactly the same as a world-class chef because it is a very simple process. So as I was watching Katla, I envisioned a nice, a nice dark bread, you know, that dark, dense. Yep. Right. You get the Scandinavian restaurants. Yes. Um, with some beautiful, just freshly churned butter. Uh, and if you're not going to do that, just get something called European style. Uh, there's some nice Irish butter. Are they a sponsor? Kerrygold? Uh, if not, holler at us. Uh, some nice, nice, beautiful butter, a couple, three, five slices of this homemade gravlax, a little bit of sea salt, maybe some pickled vegetables. Let's see. What do we, what do we drink in Iceland? The, um, aquavit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, that was what I was going to say when you, when you were telling me about how out West there aren't that many of these restaurants and that's true too in New York, except the fact that we had aquavit. Aquavit was one of the most famous sort of trendy restaurants in New York for quite a while, which of course is Swedish cuisine. Now, what I want our listeners uh, to correct me on, um, from what I've heard, the culture, food and otherwise in Iceland really is Scandinavian influenced, influenced like almost totally. So I'm just going to go on, go on assuming that until I'm told otherwise. So if there are some very specific differences, uh, I would love someone to leave some comments under their five-star review on what those would be. That would be great. But anyway, as I watched this completely fascinating, completely different, visually arresting series on Netflix called Katla, I was thinking I really would enjoy making and eating some nice gravlocks. I've made gravlocks. And uh, and it is surprisingly easy, despite its apparent complications uh, of working with seafood that way. Um, but yes, and I love the idea of burying food in the ground, but uh, you made a critical error in your assessment. What's that? You need to use the metric system. They do not use Fahrenheit in Iceland. They use Celsius. Yeah, we want to go with 50 degrees Celsius and not 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, really? Will that work? That's like over 100 degrees. Oh my God. That would be really bad. That'd be smelly, smelly gravlocks. They have a different word for everything over there. Anyone that wants uh, any, and this goes for any recipes I posted, anytime you want uh, a metric conversion or a Fahrenheit to Celsius, just let me know. I'm more than happy to tell you to go Google it and figure it out. <laughs> so anyone curious about what 50 degrees uh, and by the way, when we make uh, gravlax around here, it is definitely less than 50 degrees. Yes. I think, which is a normal refrigerator, like 40, uh, 39, 38. That's fine. Do it in your refrigerator. Don't bury it. If you are going to bury it in the winter and get super authentic, uh, make sure it's not down too deep. Although, you know what? Buried down at 50 degrees, it probably would still work perfectly with enough salt. So I think uh, you were just in my metric chops. Yes, absolutely. So my uh, pairing for this week stems from my deep, deep love, my deep unabiding love of all things Star Trek. I have been 
an unabashed trekker. We do not say trekkie. That that is derogatory. Um, I have been an unabashed trekker for most of my life. Uh, I used to record Star Trek: The Next Generation on VHS tape, and I had all seven seasons taped. And I used to edit out the commercials so I could rewatch them ad nauseum. Of course, this is before the internet. This is before um, being able to stream it on Paramount Plus. Um, before you so, ever had a date? Uh, yes, actually, you know, I have because I keep this very quiet. This is a very secret obsession. Uh, but I am, I am deeply, deeply aff uh, affected by all things Star Trek. It is the one... Uh, television franchise that um, that always lifts my spirits and always gives me hope. So I, I really love all things Star Trek. And with that, um, I was extraordinarily excited by the fact that they were launching a brand new show, which is a combination of old school Trek lore and new school Trek television. So it's called Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and it is a uh, series that is based on the time, the 10-year block of time that predates the original series. So there are a lot of familiar faces and names in this. Uh, the captain is Christopher Pike. Uh, Lieutenant Uhura uh, is a cadet who just has had her first commission, and uh, Mr. Spock is a young yet still seasoned Starfleet uh, person. So it, it's an amazing combination of old school Trek plus new school because some of these characters come from another new Star Trek uh, show called Discovery, which was uh, launched about three or four years ago. And there's this merging of the timelines between the pre- Kirk era Star Trek and this sort of modern Trek that has figured out how to work through these strange timelines. So it's really, really peak Trek nerddom if you are really into it. And it's so well done and it's really beautiful to look at. And there's this origin story about Uhura, who is the uh, who was the communications director, uh, famously uh, originated by an actor named Nichelle Nichols back in the 60s, who had... Uh, coincidentally, the first ever um, interracial kiss on camera. I remember that with William Shatner. So it is, a, it, you know, Trek has always been on the cutting edge of social justice and on the cutting edge of societal sort of questions. And um, I think they continue to do that in modern time. And they've done some really great things with this new show. And, and I'm completely hooked. But I think it's something that you could pick up even if you have never watched Trek before, because you will have some familiarity with some of the characters. So I highly recommend Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And with that, one of the things that makes me think about, and of course, I've watched a lot of Trek and they eat a lot of weird stuff on Trek because clearly they're, you know, going through strange new worlds and strange new worlds has strange new foods. And there is a food on earth that kind of reminds me of very Trek style eating, and that's sea urchin. I absolutely love sea urchin, but when I think about it, I'm thinking, why would somebody in early time decide to, hey, this spiky thing that's poisonous on the bottom of the ocean, 
if I crack that thing open, the interior of that is going to be so creamy and delicious that it's going to be uh, at the top of menus and Italian restaurants and Japanese restaurants around the world for all time. I don't know who that guy was or that woman was, but man, were they smart because that alien looking thing that surfers all are in deathly fear of, because if you step on one, you're going to be in the hospital the next day. Those things are amazing to eat. They look like crazy alien things on the bottom of the ocean. And when I watch Star Trek Strange New Worlds, that's the thing I'm thinking about eating. I want some sea urchin. And I will tell you exactly who that person was. Uh, Chef John? No. Oh. But maybe one of my descendants <laughs> or my uh, ancestors. Wait, did I just do a time warp? Yes, you did. And it's very trekky of you. That is. Uh, no, the, the, the person that discovered that was obviously someone watching a sea otter or a sea lion or a seal just in, just thoroughly enjoy these little spiky weird looking balls so then they went on their merry way and the whatever caveman equivalent of a surfer dude back then was like hey, maybe they're onto something mm-hmm. let me smash one of these bad boys open and oh my god that is really good so i always assume any of that weird sea life like why would anyone think to eat that I'm pretty sure it was mimicking animals. Okay. I have a funny sea urchin story. So when I was first dating my wife, um, her brother, not knowing what I did for a living uh, as a food photographer, thought that it was going to be some kind of ritual family hazing to try to get me to eat sea urchin. And he was so proud of himself. He was so proud of himself in this restaurant that he was going to make me eat this disgusting, slimy, weird thing. And it was going to be a great laugh for the family. And when I ate it and it was like, well, can we get more of those? And I made him buy like three more plates of it. $200 later. Yes, I got my revenge on his hazing and I ate a whole bunch of sea urchin on the house. So that was my favorite um, sea urchin interaction. So in that case, revenge was served hot. No, I ate them raw, so it was best served cold. All right. Now, I enjoyed the Star Trek, original Star Trek. Um, no offense, grew out of it about age 15 to 16. Your loss. Never did any of the new, um, you know, Star Trek, Voyeur. Voyager. Star Trek, Galactica. That would be Enterprise. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> So I, yeah, I'm weird like that. I I do like my some science fiction, but I I'm like a I have to I do the original, and then I I can't do any of the new prequels, sequel like the start the original three Star Wars loved it, and then boom done I'm done can't watch any of these. Why is uh, the guy from um, you know girls in Star Trek like it just doesn't compute with me? <laughs> uh, Adam Driver once he was in Star is like okay Star Wars franchise is over. Uh, so anyway, I, I just, I, I have a, I don't know what the word is for it. I'm a not traditionalist, like, like now that they got rid of the pitcher hitting in the national league, I might have to stop watching. You're what we call an originalist. Originalist. Yes. And in fact, when I saw that you were going to talk Star Trek as your uh, viewing recommendation, I was like, what food is this going with here? Cause of all the things I remember about Star Trek, uh, original or otherwise, Food was almost a non-existent storyline. It was like every once in a while, there was like the they'd eat something that turned you green or purple, and that would be part of the the show. 
Uh, but it was never like sitting around a nice meal of X, Y, Z. And then that, I don't know, just, it never was a show that I ever associated with food. Okay. Have you ever heard of a replicator? Absolutely not. Okay. So that's why you don't know anything about Star Trek food. Okay. Was that that box that they'd punch in and then a thing came out? Anything came out. You could punch in anything you wanted. Anything. Like, do, 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 hot potato salad, do, do, do. And then it would, it would come out. Anything. Oh, my God. Well, I might have to revisit this. They would put you right out of business, Chef John. Oh, my God. I assume it comes with a little video on how to put it together. Nope. Just got to push the button. Ah, this sounds so much better than these meal kits the kids are having to eat these days. All right. Good pairing. Good show. I'll t- I mean, I'll take your word for it. I'm not going to watch it. I'm sure the, the you know, last few people that are still tuned in uh, are going to maybe go check that out. Yeah. And I'll cover myself in ash and get on with it. Walk down from Malkino. Our second favorite new feature on the Chef John podcast, because we're going to have to have a top five on this at some point. We need to have a top five features? Yes, of course. I see what you did there accidentally. I did. I accidentally backed into a really good segue into top five. And what is our top five list this week? Sandwiches. Is that the same as sandwiches? Sandwiches? Sandwich or sandwich. And you you define this as uh, some type of protein in between something starchy. That is correct. And of course, since we're in, what is it, 2022, any protein or protein substitute sandwiched between something starchy. Now, having said that, I'm pretty sure neither of us have a plant-based sandwich stuffing in this, but just in case. Oh, uh, no, that wouldn't say that. Oh, no, no, you do. You do. Oh, no, you have two out of, okay. See, now if you're at home, I, I get to see Andrew's list pop up right as we start this segment. And uh, yeah, wow, you really love the planet way more than I do. I like the plants. You like the plants so much, you'll kill them and eat them in a sandwich. Absolutely. All right, you you, you get to go first this week. Okay, so my top five sandwiches, as defined as protein between two something starchies. Number five, the arepa. Oh, I love the arepa, which is a Venezuelan Colombian kind of sandwich, which is sort of like a pocket, almost like a pita that has been made out of cornmeal. Uh, and then you stuff it with all sorts of things. I like when they stuff it with things like beef or pork or chicken or goat. Uh, you can even stuff it with seafood. You could pretty much stuff it with anything you like. And quite often it is so delicious, slow cooked food inside this deep fried cornmeal pita pocket. You put some hot sauce in there and it is just absolutely stunning. I love an arepa. Number four on my list is a tuna salad sandwich. Uh, I love a tuna salad sandwich, but I do make my tuna salad with a traditional mayonnaise base, but I also add nuts and uh, raisins and onions and carrots and celery. So it actually, it actually has a lot in there. It's pretty, it's pretty well made. My mom used to make me the tuna salad that also had a little bit of vinegar in it. And I'm not opposed to that. I just don't make it that way. But I love a tuna salad sandwich. It doesn't matter how I eat it. It could be on bread. It could be wrapped in, in lettuce. That kind of defies my definition here, but I will eat a tuna salad sandwich pretty much at any point in any time. Love it. For number three, I'm going breakfast sandwich here and I'm going very traditionally East Coast in specifically very, very New York with a bacon, egg and cheese on a bagel. Uh, A bacon, egg and cheese on a bagel is a perfect breakfast that you can 
carry with you. You can eat it in the car, which I often did. And it is definitely crispy bacon with a fried egg and cheese on a bagel is a perfect breakfast. I love it. Uh, my number two sandwich of all time is an eggplant Parmesan hero. I absolutely love eggplant. I am an eggplant freak. I am truly Sicilian in that way. And I really, really love an eggplant Parmesan hero. It is my favorite, favorite dinner sandwich. I will designate, I have a breakfast sandwich. I have several lunch sandwiches, and this is my favorite dinner sandwich. An eggplant Parmesan hero is by far my favorite dinner sandwich. But hold the presses on number one, because there is a photograph of me at maybe two and a half years old, absolutely covered in peanut butter and jelly, because I have been eating peanut butter and jelly like my father before me pretty much every day of my life since I was two and a half years old and had teeth. And by that, you mean not well, like you're not getting it in your mouth. <laughs> you, your dad had the same problem. <laughs> yes. We can't get the peanut butter and jelly in our mouth. No, it's just that eating so voraciously that um, I get it everywhere, but I continually at in my mid fifties are still eating peanut butter and jelly on a regular basis. I go through jars of peanut butter. Like some people go through, I don't know, toilet paper. I don't know how, how, how else you want to describe that, but I eat so much peanut butter and jelly. It's almost criminal. So um, yes, my number one sandwich of all time for all time is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Wow. That's quite a list. I don't even know where to start before I do my list. Can I critique your list? Sure. And then you can critique mine. Of course. Now, just FYI for the folks in the audience who have never heard of the arepa, it is an incredible sandwich. Although I will take exception with one little descriptive uh, device you use there. Uh, it is like a pita pocket in that you kind of break it open and stuff it. Mm -hmm. But it has a very unbread-like texture. Mm -hmm, that's true. So what I wanted people to envision here is an, an, an extra fat uh, corn tortilla that's say like a half an inch thick, but that somehow it's splittable because the the surface has crusted up to such a degree on the flat top griddle that that becomes a separate texture. And then the inside is kind of soft and, and mushy and starchy and cornmealish. That's what breaks open. The crust actually, the two surfaces crust, with, with, that's what makes the separation. And what people, I don't even think, realize and enjoy these, it is actually a cooked cornmeal you have to use. Cornmeal that's cooked, then dried. So it's an instant cornmeal. That's right. Uh, in fact, it's pan. If you're ever in a, in a Latin grocery store and you see a, a canister of corn flour, cornmeal, and it says pan on it, P-A-N, that's the one I've been told, get that one, use that one to make a wrap. Okay. And it is the really salt, hot water, and it's a really simple dough. Uh, really fun to work with. So if you want looking for a new, exciting uh, uh, thing to bring into your pantry, go check out some arapas or arepas, depends on what neighborhood you're in, uh, how to pronounce it. And uh, they are fantastic. Um, love it. And uh, we'll eat them anytime. Um, your tuna salad, that made my list in a certain form, uh, but I cannot abide by any nuts or fruit or dried fruit, especially. Um I just, I, I'm a purist when it comes to the tuna. Okay. Uh, but you got, you know, you got to do, do your thing. That's fine. Um, now, bacon, egg, cheese on a bagel. Um, that's fine. I'm always, I'm down with bacon, egg, cheese in any form. Right. But I've never understood the bagel as a sandwich bread. It has 
it, to me, it's way too dense. No, you scoop it, man. You scoop it. You didn't say scoop it. This is not scoopable sandwiches. I got to hold it in my hand and eat it like a sandwich, like a like a human sandwich eater. So here's the problem. A picture of a person goes into a, a, a an amazing restaurant and orders a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. And they're, they're envisioning this beautifully flaky light. And it comes, and now it's on a biscuit that has the density and texture of a bagel. Does anyone take a bite of that and go, oh, yeah, that is much better? Well, it's different. My East Coasters out there are going to back me up on this. If you go into a bagel shop and you are concerned with the things that John is concerned with, you tell any good bagel shop that you want your bagel scooped, they know what to do. In other words, could you throw away a third of my bagel and then make a sandwich out of it? That's right. Do they ever say, oh, I could do that. Would you like it on bread instead? We actually have created a, a product for sandwiches so we don't have to desecrate a perfectly good bagel. <laughs> Can we tape this for my outrageous food take next week? <laughs> it could be a flagel. Go with a flagel. Moving along, eggplant arm hero. Yes. Totally with you. There's nothing better than a good eggplant parm, especially if it's fried correctly and so forth. Oh. With one caveat, it cannot be on bread that's so crusty that it just squishes everything beyond recognition. Okay. Can we get a, a, a more of a softer roll? More of a Yes, I, I can abide by that. Okay. And by the way, uh, I'm going to add a uh, an honorable mention at the end of my list, if you remind me, that is eggplant parm based. Okay. And it's going to blow your mind. You may actually replace it in your list with my version. Highly unlikely. Don't get too crazy. Peanut butter and jelly, fine. Made number one. You obviously have a a, a deep emotional connection to it. Correct. But the combination of peanut butter and jelly, time tested. Some food combinations transcend food combinations. They're just a perfect thing to have together. So I'm with you there. doesn't matter. Bread, toast, crackers. I'll never uh, disrespect the peanut butter and jelly. Anyway, uh, without further ado, let me give you my top five list and then you can tear it apart. Number five, the classic BLT, maybe a perfect sandwich. If I'm going to teach cooking to someone, if I like, do a culinary course one-on-one, I'm not going to start with any techniques or knife. I'm going to start just by having to make certain recipes where we can illustrate and they can sort of uh, see what cooking is about before they even learn how to do it. BLT is like a masterclass in contrasting temperatures, textures. You can teach them the difference between um, store-bought mayonnaise and homemade mayonnaise, which is like just another animal altogether. Um, So a BLT is a perfect sandwich, whether you like your bacon soft, still with some fat in it, or you like it fairly crispy like I do. It is just so perfect. And if there's a better use of a perfectly vine-ripe, sweet summer tomato, I have not come across it yet. Uh, So BLT has to, to me, make my top five list. It is a perfect food. Number four, the tuna melt. Now, I I love a good tuna sandwich. I'll eat a tuna sandwich anytime. But on a piece of grilled bread, which we put some, I like a combo, a little bit of Gruyere. I like, I don't like the straight Swiss. It's too nutty or your grocery store Swiss, uh, a little Gruyere, and then maybe something neutral, but melty and creamy, like a Monterey Jack on the two pieces of bread, lots of butter, 
those are grilling. Now, the secret is we got to get the cheese melted first because I don't want my tuna hot. I want it just barely warm. I don't want it weeping. I don't want the dressing starting to, to leak out because it got too hot. So once our cheese is melted, we're going to put a scoop of tuna on there. And my tuna salad only has diced celery, a pinch of salt, a pinch of cayenne, maybe a pinch of black pepper if I'm feeling frisky, uh, and enough mayonnaise to make it just wet enough. That is all I think should go in tuna salad. And then the controversy is, do we want to slice a tomato on our tuna melt or not? I'm not a tomato slice guy, but if you are going to put it, pull the sandwich open when it's done, put the tomato in so it's cold, and then put it back together and cut it. A hot tomato in a grilled tuna melt, I cannot abide. It's just the wrong texture. They get mushy and mealy, or better yet, eat a tomato salad on the side. So tuna melt, always loved a tuna melt, which brings me to another cheesy sandwich. Uh, just a classic cheeseburger. I'll eat that anywhere, anytime. That is the go-to. You go to a restaurant or a casual dining establishment, gastropub. You don't know what to order. What do you get? You get the burger and the fries or the chips. Um, now, I'm a little specific. I'm not a big grilled cheeseburger guy as far as grilling the beef. I'm definitely subscribed to the uh, pan-fried or hot griddle seared burger where you get that beautiful crust and there's no fat dripping into the fire and and causing that sort of gasoline type flavor you get on fire grilled burger so often. And no, people stop saying you can taste the lighter fluid. That is not the lighter fluid you're tasting. By the time the grill's hot and burning, that's burned off. What you're tasting is aerosol oil droplets falling into the fire and evaporating and that cloud of noxious oil fumes and steam is hitting your burger. That's why it tastes like gasoline. Anyway. A properly made cheeseburger, pick your fixings, don't care, on a toasted bun, uh, I think is a near-perfect sandwich, and I will eat that anytime. Number two, which is almost like number five, but significantly different, the classic club sandwich. Three Deckers, also a master class of textures and contrasting uh, ingredients. Mine is a classic BLT base, but three layers. And then it has thinly sliced, freshly roasted turkey and some perfectly ripe avocado. Um, don't forget to salt the avocado. Fatal flaw with sandwich makers. They don't salt the avocado separately. Does not work if you don't. So take your sandwich game up to another level. If you do avocado, start salting that. But that to me, the four pieces with the little toothpick, and then you, you know, you can kind of divvy it up. You got two, you got four, you've eaten two, you still got two left. It's just a different than a two-section sandwich. I don't know what it is. Psychologically, it just works on so many levels. All right, number one on Chef John's top five sandwiches. One of my all-time favorite comfort foods and my favorite sandwich, believe it or not, is a simple chicken salad on toast. Now, let me be very specific here. There are no grapes. There are no almonds. There's no curry spice. There's sure the heck is no freaking raisins. There is perfectly cooked chicken meat that ideally came off a roasted chicken leftovers that you've chopped up. And then it has to be very dense. It cannot be loose. It can't be wet. When you stick the knife in or the fork or the spoon to get it onto the bread, it has to hold its shape and not move at all, which means it has to be dry chicken. I cook dry and it just mayonnaise enough to hold it together in that form and fashion I just explained. Salt, pepper, 
Maybe a little bit of tarragon would be the only herb I would consider. Um, celery, of course, a nice small dice of celery. Toasted white bread or wheat bread, whatever you're in the mood. Lettuce, but never shaved, never never sliced, never shredded. Uh, we're talking a couple whole leaves of butter lettuce or maybe some little gems nowadays. And that's it. Lightly toasted, always with potato chips. And that is my favorite sandwich of all time. Uh, I don't know why that is. It's always been a comfort food classic, like tough day at work. I'd run out for my lunch break and I'd get a chicken salad sandwich on toast and I would always feel better. Wow. I mean, between your list and my list, I think we've given our audience lunch or and or breakfast and or dinner for the next at least three or four nights. And very quickly, in honor of your eggplant parm hero, there's a sandwich you used to make way a million years ago back catering in San Francisco that I stole from an Italian chef, Carlo Midione. Uh, he would deep fry two pieces of eggplant as if you were making an eggplant parm hero or eggplant parm. And we would use that as the bread. Oh. Fontina, salami, sandwiched between two pieces of eggplant. Then you batter the, the, you dip the whole thing in egg, breadcrumb, and you fry the whole thing. Or we used to actually do it in the oven. If you got enough oil on the pan, drizzle oil on top. 450 degrees, flip it over after 10 minutes. That is one of the great sandwiches wow. you will ever experience. And so the next time you want to go, no bread, get some gluten-free breadcrumbs. I'm, I assume that's a thing that's not gross. Get two nice squares, build the sandwich, bread it, deep fry it. It will hold together. It's hard to explain, but it does. Uh, or do it in the oven. That's actually an easier, I find, than deep frying. Uh, and it is magnificent. That's my honorable mention sandwich. The next time I'm in Northern California at the Chef John compound, yeah, we have to make that together. All right. One of our other new features is who would you love to eat with? And uh, Chef John, I'd love to start with you today. And I would love to know, who do you want to have a meal with? I would love to have a meal with the dude that rocks the greatest beard, maybe in the history of the world. Sorry, Abe Lincoln. A certain Mr. Rick Rubin. I mean, this works on so many. Are you into entrepreneurs? Are you into hip hop? Are you into just music in general? Are you into magnificent beards? Are you into people that have dropped in and out and in and back out and in society? Uh, people that live on a mysterious compound in the hills above LA and only the world's coolest people get to go hang out there, which most definitely does not include me so far. But Rick, <laughs> if you're listening, Holler at your boy. And anyone that did the the samples, the mixing, the producing for 99 Problems. I mean, there's been rock guitar riffs and rap songs since the beginning of time, but nothing that worked as well as that. I, I mean, that is just a tour de force. Anyway, love to talk with Rick Rubin, have a meal. Uh, how much food ends up in his beard, I want to know. Uh, I want to hear all the stories about hanging with LL Cool J and which was the beastiest of all the boys, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there, there would be a 14 hour meal. Cause you, I mean, how would you even get to all your questions? No, it's, it's amazing. You, you'd have to make every sandwich on a list. Yeah. So that's one of my dream uh, dinner party uh, uh, bucket list, wish list people. That is an absolute great one. And of course, because I am uh, someone who is involved in the film industry, I am fond of the callback and the callback tonight 
has to do with Star Trek, of course. Oh, great. I'm not going to get another chance to talk about Star Trek. We're so not going to. <laughs> so I figured I better take the opportunity tonight to uh, get my fill here. And the person I really would love to meet is somebody I've already mentioned tonight, and that's Nichelle Nichols. Nichelle Nichols is such a historic figure in Star Trek lore and such a historic figure in American cinema. And the fact that her character is getting so much more love in this new century um, between having Zoe Zeldana play her in the film versions of the original cast and now with this new Strange New Worlds character who got a complete origin story. I would just find it fascinating to sit down with Nichelle Nichols to find out what she feels about this resurgence of the character and this reverence that people have for the character and the historic quality of her portrayal of the character. It's just really great that that character and the fact that she was the originator of the character has gotten so much love from the Star Trek franchise and the Star Trek fans. And I would just love to sit down with her and find out exactly how that makes her feel. That sounds lovely. I'm sure she's absolutely just fantastic person inside and out. But can we just get real for a second? Tomorrow night, we're going out to dinner. You have a chance. There's two reservations. I can't explain how this happened. One is with uh, Nichelle Nichols, <laughs> and then the other is with Rick Rubin. Okay, make the call. You can only go to one. I've already made my choice. All right. I, I appreciate you sticking by your uh, guns. Or should I say phasers? Listen, with the amount of time I've invested in Star Trek, there's, n there's no question in who I would go to dinner with. Although I have invested a lot of time in the Beastie Boys, too. <laughs> the only thing I can say is uh, beam me up, Scotty. Beam me up. So as we close, Chef John, what did we learn today? Well, you know, with this new format, the show is much longer, which I, a, lot of, a lot of listeners wanted. So you know, be careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. uh, so I might switch this up a little bit and just crystallize it into one thing that from the show I learned that I would like to sort of close with. Okay. And today's, and it's going to, it's kind of a little, a little off there, out there. It's not something that we really, you only mentioned it really briefly, but it really stuck in my mind. And I think it's a fantastic idea for an entrepreneur to do. But what I, what we learned today is that when you open a package of gluten-free burger buns, they should have, you know, those uh, greeting cards that play the sound when you open it? Yes. I think what we learned today is when someone opens a package of gluten-free burger buns, the sad trombone sound should play. Oh, no. <laughs> because when you <laughs> described that, I was like, that's what I thought of you. You there like, okay, I got some gluten-free bread. It's like, wah, wah. So that's, <laughs> that was the mental image I got. Okay. But seriously, what we learned today is that... Uh, you really love peanut butter so much. You not only eat it, you've occasionally worn it. Correct. Who, who wore it better? Andrew or his dad? All right, I'll have to see the pictures. We learned you really, really, really love Star Trek. I do. To uh, a point that almost concerns me, but we'll talk about that offline. And then finally, and I think this is the most important thing we learned today. If you don't enjoy cold fried chicken, it probably wasn't made correctly. So make sure the skin's fried out, it's crispy, it should be crispy the next day, so you can enjoy it cold at a picnic, which is one of life's great simple pleasures. 
that's it. I hope everyone had a good time. Uh, we really enjoy doing this. Leave your comments, leave your ratings. Well, with that, there's only one thing left to do. Say goodnight, Andrew. Good night, Andrew.